Hey, everyone. I am here with Dr. Dave Rabin. He is the founder of Apollo Neurosciences, and he is a medical doctor as well as a PhD in neuroscience. I would actually like him to discuss his background since he has a lot of education from prestigious universities and uh, yeah, a lot of degrees. So just briefly discuss your background um, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Joe. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's great to be here and to be able to have these interesting discussions with you. Um, my, so I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. Uh, I'm actually focused on translational neuroscience, which is a field of neuroscience that's relatively new. Uh, it's focused on not just studying what happens to neurons and our brain cells and our bodies, but actually looking at how we take discoveries from neuroscience and actually move them through the path to be implemented into use and application in the real world. Um, in the, from, you know, what we talk about sometimes is a phrase called from bench to bedside, uh, which is very important in the field currently because we're spending many millions of dollars on things that are very interesting, but not necessarily useful. Um, so I, as part of that, I have always been interested in things that treat illnesses in ways that particularly mental illnesses, which are tend to be chronic, long lasting and difficult to treat. Um, and I've been interested in ways that, in, in why some people are extremely resilient and are able to overcome, uh, their mental illnesses or physical illnesses and other people are not. And so I started looking at things that helped facilitate resilience. And some of those things were, uh, most interestingly, Eastern medicine techniques. And I was of course trained in a Western background, um, with, you know, surgery and antibiotics and medicines and that being the staple of what we do. Um, but then I started looking at Eastern techniques that manage chronic illness and inflammation seemingly a lot better um, using things like nutrition, herb, herbal, uh, or herbal remedies, plant medicine, exercise, and things of that nature, and then combining that with Western techniques and neuroscience. And I found that the two together were much more effective um, at uh, providing a much wholer sense and picture of health for people. Um, and so... Based on that, I found that we could combine Eastern medicine, which is great for treating chronic illness, and Western medicine, which is great for treating acute infections, injuries, and that kind of thing together. Uh, and I've done that in my practice, which is mostly focused on PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders. Um, and since then, I've developed the Apollo technology as uh, a way to help um, give people the benefits of some of the discoveries in neuroscience that we have found over the last decade, or really, I think maybe 50 years, um, which talk about how the nervous system balances and copes with stress and resilience. And so this technology we invented um, at the University of Pittsburgh was found to be able to improve resilience and recovery from stress in the body and help things with like sleep and focus and circadian rhythms with just a gentle vibration delivered through the skin that um, helps balance the body, uh, the nervous system, the same way that deep breathing and meditation would. Um, but through, this, through the nervous system pathway of touch, it's a very hardwired and critical pathway. And, um, and so that's what I'm working on at present. And while I also see patients on the side in those areas I was talking to earlier, um, and then I'm also, I'm also an MDMA trained psychotherapist with MAPS for their PTSD, treatment resistant PTSD study, which is currently a phase three uh, FDA trial. Uh, going on right now and has shown the most promising results to date for PTSD um, patients. And so I am running currently the largest uh, controlled study of psychedelic medicines, looking at how things like MDMA, psilocybin, ayahuasca, um, and a number of other medicines that have this very interesting uh, ability where we see when they're used properly in a very safe and well-planned setting with a therapist or a clinical environment that people will oftentimes get better uh, from symptoms that are decades old in just one to three doses with, with, with associated psychotherapy. And that's something that is paradigm shifting for the way that we have always been taught Western medicine or medicine in general works, which is that you need to do things every day. This is not exactly the case. This is just dosing you know, maybe dosing once a month with a therapist or two therapists present, but then the effects could last years. And it's really um, has provided dramatic benefit for the community. And so I'm working with uh, uh, colleagues at Yale and the University of Southern California, um, as well as the not-for-profit charity Modern Spirit and uh, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, 
to study how these medicines work to accomplish this effect, um, which is very exciting for all of us to work on. That's, that's incredible. Um, I actually have a theory about something. You know, PTSD sounds like something that you go to war and you have PTSD or maybe, you know, sexual assault or something like that. I actually have a theory that, you know, I call some, I have a, you know, I call it micro PTSD events where, you know, a very stressful event and you can't recover five minutes later, right? You're not, you're, you're just not yourself after five minutes. Whereas normally you have a little stress, a little annoyance, you know, five minutes later, you're fine. Right. But then you have this, somebody really annoyed you that day, or you really got stressed out, you know, and, and then you're just like stressed for that whole day. I consider that a micro PTSD event. Is that something, is there anything to that? Or is that just a figment of my imagination? Yes. I think there's definitely something to that. I think when you call it a micro PTSD event, that's a really interesting idea or thought uh, of way of categorizing it because we, we don't think about it that way in, in mental health. We call that an acute stress event, you know, okay. acute stress <laughs> is what happened and that's fine. You know, it, it's what happens now. And then PTSD is looking back at why am I still so stressed out right now about something that happened maybe way distant in the past, right? Or even T- just t- yesterday. Right. But PTSD specifically is referring as the clinical definition is like six right, months right, old, right? right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's like past the period of grief, of our right. normal grief period. And so whereas the acute stress response can really last for, you know, anywhere from three to six months in people. Um, but PTSD is when it lasts longer. And so, but what you're describing is very important because there is an element of the past that gets tied into why an experience on the daily might seem really annoying or frustrating or stick with you. And part of the reason why you might have a, what you call a a micro PTSD experience is because the experience that you had, whether that's dealing with someone really frustrating, having a frustrating meeting or, or dealing with, you know, really hard criticism or just somebody cutting you off in traffic or whatever it might be, um, is reminding us of something that has happened before that led us to feel very negatively about that kind of situation. And so in some ways it is a micro PTSD event because the reason we feel so negatively about it in the moment and why it sticks with us is because it reminds us of some way that we used to feel in the past that was negative or or conveyed as negative or a way that we didn't like to feel. And I think what ultimately we do with our patients a lot of the time and what we try to develop Apollo to help people with is to understand that relationship to the past and the present. When you experience something like somebody cutting you off in traffic, maybe that sets you off into an alarm state because you were in a car accident where that happened a year before, right? Mm. Or 10 years before. But that doesn't mean that that's going to happen right now. However, if you lose your, your sense of cool in the moment where somebody is cutting you off because you're worried about what happened before, you're actually much more likely to repeat the trauma of the past of that old car accident and less likely to get out of that situation unscathed. And so what it's important to understand these connections between past and the past events and how we feel in the present, which is oftentimes an emotional connection so that when we understand that we can understand how to break that cycle, right? So that when somebody cuts you off in traffic, instead of saying, you know, screw that person. I hate them. I'm going to step on the gas and ride them until blah, 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 whatever. And and increase my impulsivity and my awareness and my alertness and all these negative feelings. I can sit back and take a deep breath and say, maybe that person's having a really bad day. Maybe they're late for a meeting. Maybe they're doing something that, you know, I'll give them a break and I'll just take it easy on this person right now. And so you approach it from a different perspective that doesn't what we call recapitulate or repeat the trauma. Interesting. So when I have these kinds of events, you know, if something very stressful happens, they don't happen very often. I'm usually very stress tolerant. And, um, you know, I, I forget things in like a few minutes. I'm fine. Uh, but, you know, once every three months, I'll be like, I'll get stressed and it'll last a whole day. Sure. And what I found is that the only thing able to get me out of that doesn't matter how much cognitive behavioral therapy I give myself or what I tell myself. The only thing that will get me out of those micro PTSD or acute stress response events is the psychedelics, right? And that's kind of why I call it micro PTSD because I've never had full-blown PTSD where six months later, I'm still reeling from some event, right? Right. So 
I can't fully put myself in that situation. I have had events where a week later I'm still reeling and I still don't feel back to myself. And it's like, this is probably what someone feels like when they have PTSD, but six months later. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I think is like, Oh wow, there's all this research coming out about how psychedelics can improve PTSD you know, what I'm calling micro PTSD, that's helping me right away, right? And this is not a full-blown dose of psychedelics. We're talking about microdosing. So that's right. kind of why I call it micro PTSD because I think mm-hmm. it, it's involved with the same mechanism. And like you explained, it's involved with, this, it, with the same psychological, emotional mechanisms. But tell us more about the, you know, the uh, neurochemistry, just, just briefly, sure. big picture. Yeah, you touched on a really important point there too. I think the uh, the idea of you know bringing in uh, of bringing in psychedelics and altered state experiences to try to break that cycle. Um, I think what's really interesting about this is to said now what we've learned over the last fifty years about how memories are formed, which is I think starts with the work of Eric Kandel and his colleagues who. Eric Kandel, if you don't know, won the Nobel Prize for discovering the mechanisms of learning and memory in two thousand two. Um, and is one of the greatest minds uh, in this area. And what he showed was definitively, which I love, was that, you know, these two things that we were told growing up that I never believed, and I think most of my friends never believed, and you can tell me whether you did or not, which is that two things that our parents told us, practice makes perfect. And if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So effectively, what that means is that on a neuro, neuroscience level, if you practice something, whether it's a good or bad way of thinking about yourself or the world, the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And similarly, mm-hmm. if you don't use certain things that are your strengths or your positive coping strategies or negative coping strategies, then you lose them because you haven't been practicing. They don't go away forever. They just kind of you know, they get subdued and fade into the background because they're not being useful and they're no, they don't take as much of a priority. So what you practice effectively elevates you to the level of whatever it is that you're practicing. And so if you practice, like, and I, I, I always think this is one of the most interesting examples, right? Because it's something that we can all be familiar with. If you practice feeling that every time you feel stressed out, you go get an ice cream cone. Because when you were a kid and you started to cry and get nervous or anxious, your parents gave you an ice cream every time you started to cry. Then when you're an adult, what ends up happening is that every time you start to get stressed out, you have a sudden craving for ice cream and you don't really know why, but you wind up eating a whole lot of ice cream, which doesn't necessarily serve you very well in the long run for your health or for your mental health, your nutritional health or any of these things. And so... This is very similar to the coping strategies that we train ourselves to do all the time, but they're just less obvious than eating ice cream. It can be, for example, something bad happens to me, so the first thing I do is I blame myself, or the first thing I do is I blame others, right? And so that's a very simple, another simple thing that we practice rather than something like, oh, something bad happens to me, what the Buddhists would say you practice first is gratitude, right? It's really hard for us because we haven't necessarily learned to do that, but ultimately if you practice understanding that everything that happens to you was meant to happen to you because of something that happened before and that this is a challenge for us to overcome, then the way you look at it is I'm grateful for this bad thing or this challenging thing happening to me. You don't even necessarily look at it as good or bad, but I'm grateful for this challenging thing that's happening to me because it gives me an opportunity to grow from that challenge. And so ultimately the reason this is important is because when we're talking about what you're talking about, you know, this idea of chronic stress, PTSD, micro PTSD events, little things that happen to us on a daily basis that really throw us off and that can really ruin an entire day's productivity or mood, right? Or sleep the next night or the night for the, for a week. We don't, we can't afford to have ourselves falling into that state. We just don't have the time, you know, life is too busy to be out of sorts for an entire week or even a day. And so, um, what, what is important to know is that we have within us an intrinsic ability to shift our attention by changing our perspective and the way we get meaning from these experiences by understanding the neuroscience, by understanding that if we, if we practice eating the ice cream cone every time we're stressed out, then we're going to get fat and unhealthy. But if we practice changing that path, 
And sometimes changing that path is really hard. But if you practice changing that path and every time you start to feel anxious or angry or upset, you say, ah, I used to eat an ice cream cone at this time, but now I'm going to replace that behavior with going for a run or sitting and doing some deep breathing. Then all of a sudden you shift those patterns and you retrain new patterns that take the place of the old ice cream cone pattern and start to lose weight and feel healthier. And so psychedelics, the, and getting back to psychedelics, the mechanism of psychedelics is very much that. So what we're seeing from the work of uh, Robin Carhart Harris in London, which has done some of the greatest fMRI uh, functional neuroimaging uh, studies of looking at brain patterns changing over time with psychedelic use. And typically, just so you know, these are macro doses of psychedelics, not mm -hmm. microdose studies. There's been very, very few microdose studies been done. But when we look at the macrodosing studies, we see clearly a change in, in default mode network activity, which is wonderfully called the default mode network because it is literally the network that is most active associated with our ego, our ego state, which is our default mode, which is the sense of self that we have for survival. And that's the way that we see the world all the time. And so that network is always active every day, maintaining your normal sense of self and the normal way that you do things and these normal patterns. And the more that you do things the same way you always have, the stronger that you, your default mode network becomes. As soon as you have a, a, a very powerful, emotional, meaningful experience or a psychedelic experience or a spiritual experience or a mystical experience, then that default mode network all of a sudden disrupts for a brief amount of time, which allows you to effectively decide how you want to approach the situation more in any way. So it's not just, oh, I can eat an ice cream or I can go for a run. It's, I can eat an ice cream, but I don't want to do that. I can go for a run. I can go skiing. I can meditate. I can have a nice, meaningful conversation with my partner. I can do any number of things. And those, and those any number of things become endless. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the mechanism of why psychedelics are so important is because they allow us to shift our frame of reference dramatically within a very short period of time, which is which is effectively for somebody who has been thinking about the world exactly the same way for 17 years of PTSD, you can imagine how powerful seeing themselves, for instance, as a child again would be, right? It's a dramatic experience that resets the entire way that the brain processes its self-identity. So that, that's really interesting. Um, so can you briefly explain uh, what is microdosing and what drugs can be microdosed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question too. So microdosing is a very new area of a study. Um, again, there aren't that many clinical trials on it yet, but there's an enormous amount of case studies um, because it's a lot safer for people to try these very, very small doses of medicine rather than using much larger doses um, because the, typically a microdose is exactly what it is. It's somewhere between one one hundredth and one tenth of a do an active mind altering dose of a psychoactive substance. So there's a lot of medicine that people will tell you they microdose on. It turns out there's actually a lot less that actually is effective that in the anecdotal reports, the anecdotal reports being, you know, thousands of people talking about their experiences in forums and surveys and this kind of thing. Um, but we see that the typical profile of medicines that are very powerful and useful for microdosing are of the tryptamine family. So these medicines include things like uh, LSD, uh, psilocybin, ayahuasca, um, even cannabis is, is, has some tryptamine properties that are very mm -hmm. interesting that allow it to, be, um, to work in small doses. When and it's so, consumed? Um, when it's... Con when it's consumed orally, people will sometimes microdose on very, very small doses of cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, but cannabis is more complicated because cannabinoids, they're almost in their whole own category, really. Right. Um, they are, because there's, you know, there's 100 cannabinoids active, 100 plus maybe, and then there's also terpenes and all these other flavonoid compounds. And so microdosing cannabis is much more complicated, but uh, people will do it because they don't like the feeling of being high especially in their day-to-day -day lives. And so for people who don't enjoy the feeling of being high or they don't feel comfortable um, feeling that way, then they will use uh, small, very, very small amounts of, of the medicine, um, usually taken by mouth, um, to give them a light buzz or a slightly altered or high clarity state. 
Um, every medicine microdose is slightly different, but the medicines that are typically most commonly microdosed are psilocybin and LSD um, and uh, cannabis. And then the, the medicines that typically don't work for microdosing are stimulants and amphetamine category types of molecules. Um, and Like MDMA. Um, like MDMA, right. MDMA and the MDMA-like compounds, uh, which are of the methamphetamine category of, uh, of medicine, are not typically well tolerated for microdosing because they require a certain threshold dose to achieve their effect. So unless you hit that threshold dose, then you don't really get much. And so people will oftentimes report just not having a particularly rewarding experience. But the interesting thing about the tryptamines is they're active at an enormous spectrum of dosing from zero to, you know, whatever it is that you're willing to try. So you, you just, uh, you know, so again, you have to be very careful with these things, but if you're getting reliable medicine, um, then many people are reporting that you can safely microdose these uh, medicines uh, at the one tenth to one hundredth of a of a dose. I'd say closer to the the less the, the best way to tell, determine it is to start low and, and go slow. You know, start at at the one one hundredth of a dose and then gradually work your way up to see how you're tolerating the medicine as you go. Okay, and what are the main most significant benefits in your point of view uh, based on understanding the biochemistry, any kind of uh, clinical studies out there, which are not, they're not really done on microdosing, but um, the case reports, what are the biggest benefits for microdosing? So anecdotally, I think, you know, we see, again, there's no clinical trials that have been published yet, but uh, that have been done in large populations. But what we see anecdotally and from, you know, thousands and thousands of self-reports is that people who microdose which is usually done every three days or so on one tenth, one hundredth of a dose of typically psilocybin or or LSD, um, is that people feel clear, uh, focused, decreased anxiety, improved mood, and better ability to sleep at night and get restful sleep. Um, and that they say that after about three months of doing this every three days, that people will typically report. Um, consistently after finishing their three months course, um, they will report consistent improvement in mood, energy, anxiety, sleep, uh, et cetera, and just a generally more balanced life, um, which is interesting because, you know, I think, again, when we really think about the way that psychedelic medicines are so different and why they're so challenging from compared to Western, traditional Western medicine for mental health, we see Western medicine being told us us being told that western medicine has to be prescribed and taken every day sometimes multiple times a day whereas psychedelic medicine like lsd and psilocybin in the microdose form is taken you know once every three days for three months and then you stop ssris maois tricyclic antidepressants uh, antipsychotics you know sometimes we take them every day or twice a day for years and years and years and that's what ultimately leads to a significant number of chronic side effects so it's very interesting to see these microdosing uh, microdose medicines as a new way to, to achieve very similar effects. In a lot of cases from the reports, it seems like more powerful healing effects um, than people are getting from things like, ser- you know, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Zoloft or Prozac. But I think ultimately it's just a matter of time before those clinical trials are conducted and we'll actually see without a doubt how they compare. Um, in terms of how the medicines work, I think this all comes from the theory of the study of LSD and psilocybin, which I think most recently was determined, discovered by um, Franz Boldenweider in Switzerland, uh, who has done some of the most incredible work uh, behind these substances. And he showed that uh, in addition to the work that was done in England with the default mode network, that he wanted to look at how the serotonin receptors respond to these substances, because we know that serotonin is critical to mood energy regulation and sleep regulation and the formation of meaning or, you know, how we get generate meaning from ourselves and meaning from our experiences. And so one of the things that's really interesting is that when you take and most notable about any psychedelic drug experience or any mystical or altered state or present experience, um, what people experience and they report most commonly is that their sense of meaning of things that they are in their environment change. Like things like songs they used to not like, now they like because they find them interesting. 
um, colors and patterns and things that they've been surrounded by, the feeling of their clothes and their bodies, the feeling of someone else touching them, things that might have been totally mundane and boring in the past, now all of a sudden take on new meaning. And this has been the most common, re common experience reported from any kind of altered state experience for generations. And so taking that into account, Franz Vollenweider said, well, why don't we see if there's one receptor that's critical to the understanding and the interpretation of meaning? And so he did a bunch of research and we found that, that LSD and psilocybin both bind one particular serotonin receptor more powerfully than most others, other of the serotonin receptors. And that receptor is believed to have a large portion of the impact, downstream impact of how these medicines work on the brain. And because those receptors are very concentrated in the cortex, which is where we store all our memories and experiences, particularly in the emotional cortex, which is that part of the brain we were talking about earlier that is really critical for maintaining and establishing safety in the body and understanding what is a threat and what is safe and our sense of self and all these things. And so he gave people a blocker that's orally active and they didn't know they were taking it and mm. he gave it to them um, and it blocks just one serotonin receptor called the 5-HT2A receptor. And what happened was when he blocked this one receptor, which is known to be a very powerfully binding psilocybin and LSD, that all the effects of meaning change were gone from the blocking of this one receptor. And that's really fascinating because up until those papers were published, we did not know that one receptor was responsible for interpretation of meaning in our lives. And so what he showed was that when you block that receptor, you no longer feel and ex have an experience with LSD or psilocybin at all, where there's any shift in your relationship between the things around you and yourself or the way you feel about yourself. None of that changes. And so when, you, but, but why is that interesting? It's interesting because serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like SSRIs and, um, and uh, medicines like those bind, they release more serotonin in those receptor sites and particularly around the 5-HT2A receptor, but all the serotonin receptors and they flood the receptor sites. And what happens is when you flood a receptor site, it floods the receptor site so much so that the receptors become less sensitive to that molecule. And what happens when something becomes less sensitive? Well, you become, it becomes numb. Interestingly, the most common side effect of SSRIs, Prozac, Zoloft, and Celexa, and all these other medicines that we prescribe very, very commonly for anxiety and depression is numbness. That people mm -hmm. not only have a decrease in their ability to feel negative feelings, they also have a decrease in their ability to feel positive feelings. And so your window of emotion, instead of bouncing all over, you know, going from euphoric when you're having your best, most amazing experience to devastated at your worst experiences, which is actually normal now becomes brought into this more narrow window where you don't really feel the highest highs or the lowest lows. You kind of feel okay all the time. Most people report that as two major side effects. I feel numb, nothing really, or apathetic, nothing really matters to me more. And the second one is that they can't have orgasms anymore. Mm -hmm. And when you're already depressed or anxious, I feel like the last thing that you would really want is to not be able to have an orgasm anymore when that may be something that's a major source of joy in your life. Right. And so, uh, and so what, what's fascinating is that these experiences are completely different with things like psilocybin and LSD, which bind those receptors in different ways. What it's looking, what it's looking like with psilocybin and LSD is they don't flood the receptor. They actually bind the receptor to increase its affinity for serotonin and increase what's called burst activity. So when you flood a receptor, you lose burst activity because the receptor, if this is the receptor, then you have lots of, lots of serotonins coming in and it's so flooded, the receptor basically closes off and retracts because it's overactivated, it's overstimulated. And then with LSD, what happens is the receptor and psilocybin, the receptor is bound by LSD on the side and then serotonin comes in and it clamps it harder. And so what you do is you get this longer burst of activity at that receptor and that burst of activity is what is theorized to actually be causing this, this meaningful experience. It's the burst that you create, the contrast between negative and positive, that allows you to feel wonderful 
meaningful experiences or between positive and negative, which allows you to feel negative trauma, which is like a negative meaningful experience, right? And so that's what gets encoded into our memory is how powerfully contrasting and meaningful that experience is. If the, if the experience is just a meh experience, then it's not gonna be that memorable. But if the experience is a burst and powerful experience, which could be accentuated or catalyzed by a, by a medicine or catalyzed by somebody holding your hand in that moment or catalyzed by eye to eye contact and having a really powerful um, conversation or whatever it may be, then you will have more burst activity of that receptor, which is theorized to be causing more of a powerful change. And so that is how we think over time the theory of how these medicines work, again, from macrodosing studies, but the theory of how they work in macrodosing studies is likely to unfold into microdosing so that in general, if you experience psilocybin or LSD on a regular basis at low doses, you're gradually increasing the amount of presentness and meaning that you can take from your life. And that's what creates this more healing response that we see in people who microdose. Again, all theory, but it's well supported by some incredible science that um, you know, Franz Olmweider could win the Nobel Prize for this work. I mean, it's just incredible work. Wow, that's, that's an incredible explanation of how SSRIs uh, compare to the psychedelics in changing your brain, essentially, and uh, allowing you to experience meaning in life. So one question that I have is, what are the side effects of microdosing psychedelics besides being happier in life? um well so the side effects of microdosing i think go are you know they're much lower than than taking other uh you know mat full doses of psychedelic medicine um but in general you know i think the same side effects are important to watch out for so psychedelic medicines in general are what we call dissociative medicines so this Mm -hmm. idea about default mode network which is this brain network that that is directly correlated with our sense of self it gets stronger when you practice your sense of self um, is critical to maintaining your sense of self. And so what happens is if, if you disrupt the default mode network and somebody does not have a firm sense of self, then it is possible that they could lose themselves, not forever, but for an uncomfortable amount of time. And that's what a lot of people will call a bad trip or a, uh, negative, um, emotional or uncomfortable experience, restless experience under the influence of psychedelic medicines. We typically do not see these kinds of side effects with microdosing, but it's always possible. And it, and it does happen particularly in people who have, um, a, a history of mental illness. So I think the biggest risk of microdosing is if you have a history of something like bipolar disorder, uh, psychotic disorder, schizophrenia, or any disorder that has a psychotic or delusional component to it, then you, there is actually a significant risk of microdosing, which is called dissociative experience. And dissociative experience can set you off and make your symptoms actually much, much, much worse from the mental illness if you're not in a supervised setting. And so it's very important, you know, when we talk about um, all of these medicines is these medicines are extremely powerful and they're medicines. They are not recreational substances. And so it is important to treat them with respect as medicines and to use them as such. And if you happen to be somebody who is a vulnerable patient, you know, somebody who is, should not be taking medicines like a child, a, um, an adult with a mental illness like bipolar disorder or history of psychosis or somebody who's pregnant or elderly, it's always, always critical to make sure you talk to your doctor about having these experiences before you do it uh, on your own and make sure you set it up with somebody who's an expert um, because it can be very, very, uh, you know, dicey for some people. A lot of the things that you're mentioning sound, these dissociative experience sound a lot like depersonalization and derealization. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that, is that, would you say that they're synonyms? They're very similar. I think, so I think that the, Yes, I think they're very similar, and we, and we interchange those terms a lot. I think what is important to note is why some people, and what, is that this is controllable, right? So it's not that everyone, because we obviously use these medicines with people who have severe mental illness, right? So 
even people who, are, who have chronic treatment-resistant depression or PTSD oftentimes have a propensity or a likelihood of dissociation or depersonalization, and they are also at risk. And so it's, you know, we see this all the time, and I think what we found is that there's actually somewhat of a formula to why some people have these negative dissociative or depersonalizing experiences versus powerful healing experiences and why some people get addicted or dependent on these medicines and other people actually can use them once or twice or three times and have lasting benefit for years. And so I think that the, the main differences is escape versus engagement. So this life, this reality, whatever you want to call it that we're in, this sense of consciousness experience that we're in, um, some people feel and they believe firmly that there is a way out, that there is an escape from this experience in the human form, beyond death, other than taking your own life, that there is an escape from this experience. Some people believe that taking your own life is an escape from the experience. And I think ultimately what we know from the, the uh, Eastern and Western techniques is that there really is no escape. You can't escape from reality and consciousness because consciousness likely from Eastern medicine is likely to follow you after you die. You know, we don't necessarily know that for sure, but tribal and ancient spiritual cultures in across the world have been talking about this for thousands and thousands of years. And they're probably not altogether that wrong about it. We just haven't figured out how to, how to prove it in Western medicine. And so if you believe that you can escape from reality or escape from consciousness, you will seek out the medicine as a way to escape from consciousness. But what you're ultimately escaping from is yourself. Because consciousness and what we learn from psychedelic medicine practice is that consciousness and reality and God or spiritual entities around us, whatever you want to call them, and ourselves are all one. We have the ability to distinguish ourselves as separate, but we're all inherently one entity that is all energetically connected. And so if you try to escape from that energy, if you try to escape from that entity, from that experience that we're all sharing together, you will quickly find that there is no escape and that you will fall into a depersonalized or dissociative state where you're dependent on the substance or the chemical or whatever it is from outside of yourself to achieve that escape. But if you approach it from the standpoint of engagement, whereas I am trying to learn more about myself, I'm trying to learn more about my environment and learn more about how to bring all the pieces together and understand this puzzle that I'm in for good or for bad, how do I figure out the way that this works and the meaning behind it? then you are much, more, much less likely to have those dissociative or depersonalizing experiences. The problem is that people who have mental illness that involves dissociation and depersonalization, like bipolar disorder, like schizophrenia and psychotic disorders, are just naturally more likely to engage in those kinds of coping strategies that involve a sense of escape because that's what they've trained to do. Remember, practice makes perfect. And so if somebody has already practiced those pathways and you give them something that says, hey, now dissociation is easy, then their brain jumps right into that. And if you, um, and if you don't, if you, if you guide them to that process, then it's possible to help them um, avoid that situation by teaching them about it. Interesting. So what about, I'm actually curious about the mechanisms that are involved in these depersonalization, derealization, it seems like it's quite complex because on the one hand, you have the psychedelics, which actually cause this depersonalization, this disassociation. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the psychedelics that are helping the certain conditions that have this, for example, PTSD. Uh, side effect is often disassociation, right? Right. And then in my experience, I've had clients, for example, or people who have, you know, told me, I've tried the psychedelic and, you know, I'm now like, you know, it, it caused the, I, I think I took too much and now I have this kind of depersonalization or derealization, uh, this dissociative, they, they often can call it brain fog, but brain fog is a, a nebulous term that can describe a lot of things, right? And sure. sometimes it's, they're actually describing a disassociation or some kind of you know, um, yeah, some kind of derealization or depersonalization. And other times they're discussing, they're, they're talking about something completely different. But, and then there's another case, for example, there's other people that have a very strong inflammatory response to something. And then after that, they feel like their brain is different, right? It's all of a mm -hmm. sudden they have, they get this depersonalization. So you have 
quite a lot of distinct cases causing the same kinds of symptoms. And I feel that the only way to know how to tackle it is to really understand it at the biochemical level, right? Yeah, I think that that is where all of this is going, right? And ideally that is one of, and I, but, I, but I, I would disagree in that it's not the only way to tackle it. I think that it has to be tackled on a holistic level. Sure, right? We sure, have to look it, at yeah. all the sides of what's going on. Sure. So there's the, meta, the cognitive, the, the metacognitive, the, you know, and all the spiritual and all those other levels that are going on, the clinical level, what, what's observed in the person. Then there's also the down from that, the molecular, the cellular level, right? And all the way down to proteins and DNA. But and what the, do we know right now? about this dissociation and depersonalization. Um, you know, for again, the psychedelics could help someone with PTSD, let's say with disso right. disassociation, yet it's causing more disassociation in some other way, right? right. In, in, the, so, in the short term, of course, it, when yeah. you're taking a full dose. Well, it's not always doing that, right? So I think this is, the, this is what's really interesting is that it's, and again, we're talking about macro dosing here. Macro, yeah. Cl clinical, <laughs> clinical right. level dosing. Um, uh, so I think what's important is that the intention of the experience really matters, right? This is where it comes down to escape versus engagement. It's the intention of the experience for the user we're finding is dramatically impactful. For example, when you, when you or whoever it is takes MDMA or, or psilocybin mushrooms that they get from their friend and go to a rave or a party, you're going to have a dramatically different experience than you will if you take the same dose of exactly the same medicine and you sit mm -hmm. with two therapists in a room that's very comfortable and quiet and peaceful for eight hours. Guaranteed, you will have a dramatically different experience. And I can tell you that because people who have done this will tell you that when they do the therapy experience after having done the prior club raving party experience for years, they will tell you that they firmly believe that the medicine they took in the clinic is a different drug. That's how different, <laughs> seriously, that's how different their experience is. That they actually believe that the medicine they took is completely molecularly different and it's identical in most cases. And so what, what is changing is not the medicine. Sometimes there's some purity issues, but what's really changing is the intention that the person comes in and the set and setting, right? The mindset that they come into the experience with and the setting, the environment that cultivates or help and helps them manifest what it is that they want to get out of the experience. When you think about the root word psychedelic, right? Psychedelic means mind manifesting. What that means is that you, when you take these medicines are engaged in these altered state psychedelic experiences from meditation or medicine, because meditation can also get you into what we call psychedelic or altered states, then what you're doing is you're getting yourself into a state where you're so engaged with your environment in a new way and with yourself in a new way and learning about yourself that you're able to manifest your will, manifest your mind in your reality in a new way right? Make things happen that you put intention in, into. That's what manifesting means, right? And mm -hmm. so if you go into a, a psychedelic session with the intention of escape, party, going on a trip or a journey that doesn't really have any guidance or boundaries or rules or goals, then you're kind of leaving it up to the birds, right? You're just throwing it up there and you're saying, show me what you got. I don't I don't have any goals from this experience. My goal is to go on vacation. Mm -hmm. And vacation for a lot of people means not engaging in your sense of self, not connecting with your environment, not thinking about work, not thinking about your friends. It means just blasting off to another place. And that place under the, under the framework of escape does not really have a lot of meaning. You know, people will see aliens, they'll see patterns, they'll see horseshoes and unicorns and rainbows, all these things that have no meaning for them. They call them hallucinations. They call them fake. As soon as you take those same medicines in the context of, of, a, of a healing intention, like I want to make my pain go away, or I want to focus on healing my skin inflammation or my inflammation in my body or my depression or whatever it is, all of a sudden the patterns that you see 
start to take on meaning because they actually mean something. It's just that your the intention is providing a roadmap for your brain to follow through the experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does actually. And so, so that that reduces the rate of dissociation because your intention is to draw a stronger connection between self and the experience you're having and reality and consciousness. Whereas in the former with the escape section, right? The intention is almost to withdraw. Mm-hmm. I see. What about on a biochemical level? Do you, is there any research? Like, do you know anything on the biochemical level? What's happening when somebody is, you know, uh, having a bad trip, let's say, versus a good trip or having a negative depersonalization experience? Um, I, I understand the, the you know, the, the uh, how it's, you know, someone's intentions are impacting it um, and, and some big picture things. But how is that yeah. working? Do we have any idea about how it's working on the biochemical level? I think, I think, I mean, that's a really fascinating question. And I think that's a question that's on a lot of people's minds right now. And we don't really know yet because it's been impossible or very, very difficult to study. Um, almost all the studies of bad trips actually have been with LSD that were conducted under MK Ultra by the CIA. So we really don't, you know, seriously, we don't have where they actually dose people unknowingly, which is the best right. way to get a bad experience because you don't know why you start to feel funny uh, and you think it's just you. Right. And then you start to feel really odd. And so, uh, and, not, and not really understand how to interpret the experience you're having. And, but a lot of that data it was kept secret, not released. And so we don't really have a lot of experiences of people having negative or a lot of studies of people having these negative experiences. I think right now the best evidence that we have for what's going on goes back to the understanding of, of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the way that we're interpreting meaning in our, in our brains, but also the way that our, that our bodies molecularly and cellularly through our nervous system understand familiarity, right? So when you think of what the brain is doing neurologically when we experience something that's familiar to us, what happens is we get our amygdala, which is the fear center in the emotional cortex of our brains, which is the first place that goes off to sense threat versus safety. If we sense safety, then that does not go off in terms of firing patterns. If we sense fear, that goes off immediately, right? Mm-hmm. And so the most fundamental, one, two of the most fundamentally important uh, things that our body understands as fear and safety are familiarity and unfamiliarity. Mm-hmm. Unfamiliarity almost immediately triggers fear, which sends amygdala to fire and then sends your brain into a fight or flight response, which increases adrenaline, norepinephrine, um, and things of that nature, which puts you into a, you know, a fight or flight or freeze response more likely, or at least start you on that path, which we call sympathetic response. And then familiarity does the opposite. It suppresses the amygdala. It increases activity in the empathy and emotional cortex, which is responsible for empathy, interoception, feeling your body, and introspection, which is thinking about yourself. And, and, uh, and then it, boosting that activity further inhibits amygdala activity and gives more agency or control to your prefrontal cortex, which is your sense of, you know, your really sense of decision-making agency and identity. So the more that you feel safe, the more that you feel agency, mastery, the ability to take control, to master things in your environment and yourself, and to actually be able to make effective decisions from a standpoint of strength rather than weakness. Mm-hmm. And so we know that all these things correlate with one another um, and fear and safety are at the core of it. Uh, and so when you're having a bad trip, what is really happening, at least from what we know about the theory of the body, is that your body is, is radically entering one of these fight or flight responses. Mm-hmm. And so anything that helps you balance that, anything like deep breathing, mindfulness, Apollo, right? Apollo helps get people out of bad trips because Apollo sends soothing vibrations to the skin that dramatically boost parasympathetic activity because it mm-hmm. feels like loving, soothing touch. And so just like somebody giving you a hug on a bad day, you can, uh, you can alleviate the, the discomfort of a psych- negative psychedelic experience with all of these techniques. But it just, but it, but it, it, it is, you know, I think that is really the core of the mechanism on the molecular level in the neurons and in the cells. We're not 100% sure what's happening. But again, 
it's, it's probably not that different than being traumatized. It's probably mm -hmm. much more similar to experiencing trauma than it is to recovering from trauma. But we're starting to understand that these things are all very similar. It's just that, you know, how, how we draw meaning from those environments is very tricky. You know, I think one thing that I'll leave you off with, which is very important to note, is that when people have bad trips, bad trips are often caused by resisting things that come up on your trip experience. So when you're in an altered state of consciousness and you experience uh, a negative uh, emotional or uncomfortable mental state or emotional experience, it's usually something that's coming up for a reason. And so if you embrace that thing that comes up with love and acceptance because it's coming from you and say, this is something that I need to work on because it's obviously surfacing right now, and then you process it and you deal with it and work through it, then you're going to be fine. But if you resist it and reject it and say, no, that's not part of me, that's uncomfortable, that's scary, that makes me feel bad, I want to put that away, sweep it under the rug, it's not me, whatever it is, then you blame somebody else for it, et cetera, or you blame yourself, then what happens is you start to work, you know, train that cycle of trauma, which effectively, those are all the same thoughts that go through somebody's head when they've experienced a terrible trauma. So they're really all very, very similar uh, mechanisms that are going on here. And that's why this experience, the set and setting is so critical because a trauma might not be a trauma if somebody had support afterwards. And that's mm -hmm. oftentimes the single most important thing is not the preparation for that trauma. It's having somebody there afterwards to make sure that they give you support and make sure that you know that it's not your fault that that happened and that you have the resources to recover from it. That's great stuff. That's great stuff. Um, okay. Thank you so much for coming on. And is there any way, uh, yeah, I mean, do you have any kind of, um, I, I know you're doing your Apollo and is that, is that sold to consumers right now? Yeah. So Apollo is um, currently available to cons general consumers. It is, available on uh, apolloneuro.com or apolloneuroscience.com. And you can get exclusive access to our pre-order sale uh, currently. And it is uh, going to be shipping in January. And um, you can also find me at Dave Rabin on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Uh, I am also there if you want to reach out to me. Uh, and my email address is dave at apolloneuro.com. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on and appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Joe. It was a pleasure being here and I really appreciate the time.